Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Nancy Jenkins with Nancy Jenkins Real Estate in South Burlington, Vermont. Last year, she closed 182 transactions with a total sales volume of $58 million. Her average sales price was $321,000, of which 44% were buyers and 56% were sellers. She operates a team with 13 members, five buyer specialists, two listing selling partners, one business manager, one IT manager, one marketing coordinator, one client care coordinator, one courier, and one team leader. Nancy Jenkins is the team leader of the Nancy Jenkins Real Estate Team. She has been an agent for 31 years. She works the greater Burlington market. In her best year, 2004, Nancy sold 279 homes worth $72 million. She sold approximately 5,000 homes in her career. In this call, Nancy talks about starting her career when mortgage interest rates were 18% reaching for the next level in order to fund a current need. Thinking in terms of units, not volume. How she generates 80% of her business from repeat and referrals from past clients and sphere of influence. Her marketing plan, designed to touch her sphere 15 times per year. Prospecting for business, how she attracts referrals. How her monthly newsletter appeals to four personality types deciding to scale back her production to a manageable level, how to give back with college scholarship giveaways, Boys and Girls Club, United Way, and charity work, adding her first assistant, what her team looks like today, working with your spouse and children, how to be a laissez-faire manager, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Nancy. Hello. Yes, thank you for calling me, Mike. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. Let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I got into real estate, I was supposed to be a teacher. Um, I went to graduated from Boston University, and I was a um, physical education and elementary school major. Then I got married and had three small children. And in 1981, as they were all just really small, and you know how it is when you have small children, you have no money, I went into real estate as a part-time thing that I could do with small children at home. How long were you part-time? Probably about three months. almost impossible to be part-time in real estate. But the good thing back then, you probably were a little bit looser because you didn't have as many uh, ways to stay connected. And you could work around schedules. I started real estate in 1981 with 18% interest rates, which was pretty interesting. And um, since I was really hungry, I learned to cold call in order to try to figure out how to make some money. And I worked then with a company called ERA, 
So I was cold calling out of the telephone book, asking people if they would consider buying a home and if it was either the down payment that was stopping them or the interest rate. And usually people would talk to you about the market because it was outrageous at 18% interest rates. And if I could find out which it was that was causing the problem, I could solve the problem and get them to buy a house. How did you solve the problem when they said it was the interest rate? You could blend interest rates. So you could find out if they were a VA. Back then they did things where you could take the new 18% interest rate and blend it with the person who's selling the houses and come out with like 14 or 16 or you could do an assumable. Uh, they had all kinds of creative options for getting in. And also, if you looked at it, I had a young couple who bought VA with an 18% interest rate. And also back then, all the houses were electric heat because nuclear energy was going to be the savior of all of us. So these people are buying 18% houses with electric heat. But at the time, it's, they qualified, and that was for them a, a great purchase. Well, you learned a lot about creative financing and thinking fast on your feet. Yes, there there were a lot of new construction because there was a program called a FHA 241B, and they still have it. That was one of the ways that people were able to get a lower interest rate in a new house with electric heat. So it was a, a challenging time to join, and all of the people who just became realtors during this correction also would have had to work harder. And I think in some ways, if you start during a correction, you have maybe better a skill set than people who started when it was cherry-picking time and they had to stop what they were used to doing and relearn how to sort of dig around in the trenches and find business. Nancy, did you have a fast start or a slow start to your real estate career? A fast start, because I was very hungry. I had no money, so I really needed money. So I made myself some goals that um, the first check of the month had to pay the bills and the second check of the month I could save it. The third check I could buy some clothes or something that I needed to do the business with. So I had to get up to three in order to get the extra money that I needed to, because I didn't have uh, a wardrobe. (laughs) I was a stay-at-home mom, so I had no wardrobe. And I didn't have briefcases and calculators and the things that I needed So I had to have three sales in order to get there. So I kind of pushed myself into that little faster pace in order to make enough money that I needed. So it kind of built all around what did I need, not not a goal to succeed, but a goal to uh, satisfy what I needed to, you know, crack the nut. Do you recall how many transactions you closed in your first year? I don't. You know, I've often thought I should go back and look. But I don't, I don't remember. I'd have to go. I, fig, I guess I could go figure it out someplace. That business is gone. That, that company's gone. And um, shortly after that, the person who was the manager had left and then asked me if I would come manage a brand-new company that he opened in 82. So I moved over to a new company in 82, and I was very new. But I did some managing, and I did selling, and that company um, ended up, signing up with a different national franchise with Coldwell Bankers. So we were the first Coldwell Banker in Vermont, and, and uh, that company went out of business in about 85. So it would, I'd have to go figure out how to find all those old numbers. But I know that one of the things that was interesting, in the mid-80s, 
when that second company collapsed, the owner kind of failed, all of the people in that company, we got together and opened a new company. And that one was from about 85 till just this year when I opened Nancy Jenkins Real Estate. I had been affiliated with a partner, and that was a nice, good, long affiliation. And we grew from being a company to just being teams. And then since we were both two teams, we ended up deciding to just be our own company. So it was a nice, long process over all these years, about 31 years of real estate. So a lot of changes in those 31 years from having been an agent and then a manager and then to manage a company and then build a team. And then we had kind of an interesting business model that we had two really big teams and other agents, some of whom had teams, and we were doing that in the mid-'90s, and a lot of that was due to Howard Brinton and the star power world that I was involved with from the late 80s, picking up ideas from other people, copying things, trying things out that made sense to me, and working. So back when my girls were deciding to go to college in high school, I decided... I needed to sell more houses so I could pay for college. So a lot of the, my growth was motivated by things I needed to do. So your big why, your big reason for getting something done? It was back, you know, it was very motivated by those things. I was a single mom for lots of years, and that was, you know, I'm, if you're on commission and you're, you're in charge of the bills, you really have to pay attention. And we wanted to go on vacation. We had some great Club Med vacations. So I had to increase the number of sales I was doing to to add on all these extra things that we wanted to do. So uh, we had a great time. And I I know that as Howard came around in the early, mid-80s, the first time I saw him, he was talking about don't be an invisible agent. So I went and put my picture in. I was told you can't do that. That was part of how we all ended up in a company of our own so we could do what we wanted. So we put our pictures in as agents, and that was really unheard of. And then his next speech was, if you don't have an assistant, you are one. So in early, like around 1991, um, I hired my first assistant, which was very scary because if you're a single mom of three kids and um, their high school teenage years and you're going to now support someone else, It was a big mental step. Um, But as Howard would say, you know, uh, what are your mooring lines? What's holding you from doing something that you need to do to move forward? And if you can't let go of what you've been doing and take that chance, you can't ever succeed. You have to change what you're doing. If you keep doing what you're doing, you'll always get the same results. So I took a leap of faith and hired an assistant. And I think there are a lot of agents out there now who may also be looking at that and saying, well, you know, if my career numbers keep going up and down, I've got to get them steady. I've got to make sure that I don't have peaks and valleys because that's anxiety provoking to say nothing about bad for your um, budget. So you have to make it a business plan. And as you make it a business plan and you say, where do I want to go next? you may very well need to hire an assistant if you haven't already, and now they're not called assistants, but someone to help you out and do what you don't do best. Paperwork is not my favorite thing. I'd rather be with people and selling 
than filling out forms and paperwork. So Judy did a lot of the paperwork, and we also, with those ads, had a uh, hot phone. We called it the, like a bat line. So I had my own phone number. That was unheard of back then, too. You were told you couldn't do that. And so, of course, I had to have my own company so I could have my own number. So I would advertise my number, and it would ring on my desk. So if I was out, she would answer the phone. That was novel back in you know the late 80s, early 90s. People didn't have their own phone numbers, and they didn't have their names on signs. And so all of that was a new phenomenon, which really has given the agents in real estate more power. Before it was all about the house, the real estate house. So you were, you know, you you were one of a flock in a house or in a stable, or so you weren't able to really make a name for yourself. And now I think the challenge for a brokerage is you have many agents who have big names. So the real estate business has had to really change. And all, I think, because of the way Howard Brinton spread the news on this and how successful it really is for the individual agent in order to profit. So it it changed the whole complex of uh, real estate as it's practiced today. There are more teams more individuals that are known, more people putting their own names and their own signs out, even if they're brand new. They have to build their name so they can get repeat business. Nancy, when you brought in the first assistant, thinking back for a minute, did you have all the money put aside to pay that assistant, or did you just go move forward and think that you'd figure it out? I figured out how many houses I had to sell in order to... You see, that's the way I looked at everything. I had to add another one a month for I had to pay, pay her. So I had to figure out how many more houses did I have to add so that she could get paid. So if I was doing... I remember the way back, again, back to Howard Brinton, Coldwell Banker had this thing that I think you got an award if you sold 45 houses. So my first goal was to hit the 45 houses. And then the next one was that you could, if you sold 65, you were some, you know, the top thing, 1% in the nation. So, of course, I, ha- I did 65 because there you go, it was a goal. And in that process is where, where I fit in figuring out how, how many houses do I have to sell for this, 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 and this. So that's kind of how I would think of things, not by volume, but by unit. And the, um, the Howard thing came back with I was at another one of his meetings, and, and he, they were talking about selling 100 houses a year. I was like, wow, I never knew anybody could sell 100 houses a year. And then we were talking about a $100,000 day well, that would be good to have a $100,000 day. So I think that by listening to these sorts of tapes, by getting outside of your world as an agent, you've got to go listen to people nationally, listen to people across your state, listen to these kind of tapes, because you don't realize that you could do these things until your mind gets around, oh, I could sell 100 houses, oh, I could have a $100,000 day. So you have to take your goal, as Howard would say, cross it out, Put in a new number. Put a number that's a challenge in. And that is how I got where I am. And when I went back to hiring Judy, as your question was, I had to figure out how many houses I had to sell in order to pay her. But I didn't want to just pay her. I wanted to go up to the next level. So um, increasing the, the volume so that I could put money away, so I could put money in a, a retirement account, so I could buy disability insurance, So I make sure I have health insurance for my kids. All of that sort of thing adds up to a number of more houses every month. Did you hire Judy full-time or part-time? 
At first, it was part-time. She had just moved to the area and became actually a client after we got going, after I hired her. I said, we got to buy a house now. So I think that we started part-time, but within maybe six months, it went to full-time. And then we had to hire another. I had to hire somebody to help Judy. And we were working out of a cubicle that was about four by six. So we had three desks in there, and you couldn't all stand up at the same time. It was kind of crazy. But we had three desks. We had the, high, we had the bat phone in the center desk. And I was mostly not there. So they were in the office more. My desk was mostly empty, so they would, you know, kind of organize stuff on the top of my desk. And, but if we were all in at the same time, it was a little bit of a challenge in there. Brings back memories. That's really fun. Yeah. Now let's, let's look at this. How many homes did you sell last year? In 2012, 182. That's fantastic. And how many homes did you sell in your best year? My best year was 2004, and I sold 279 for $72 million. That's great. It was great, but we made a decision that that was, it was, I needed to either bring the team up again and stay in a really high volume or back it down a little bit and, um, and decide, you know, I need to decide what, where, I was, where was I comfortable and how much did I want to do. So some of it was the market, but some of it was a conscious decision. At that point, I got my husband to quit his job. Um, I had gotten married in 92, and he was a lender in our local area. And uh, Judy decided to go become a nurse. And, of course, so now Judy's been my right arm for about 14 years. And... With her going, I needed someone who really was going to be as involved as I was. So um, I convinced Brian Jackson, my husband, to quit his job, and uh, that was a leap of faith for him. And so he's my back room. He's in charge of numbers and organization and hiring and all that sort of thing. And it's a, a nice, comfortable connection that, His skill base is a little different than mine, so he likes filling out forms, and I don't. So he's in charge of all of that kind of thing and, you know, staffing and and ordering and everything that I don't like to have to worry about, he's in charge of. So you compliment. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And we decided I I pulled back on, on my number of hours that I wanted to work. Also, in 2005, I decided I didn't want to work like a mad person, and I wanted to have more quality and more balance in my life. So that's where some of that decision about what do we want to do. Do we want to be a 300-a-year house kind of team, or do we want to be more like a 200-year house team? So we, we made some adjustments so that everybody on the team could have more quality of life instead of cranking, because that was a year of cranking. You're still working with Brian, correct? Correct. Yep, and still married. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, you've been working together in the business now for 20 years. Yes, yep. How do you do that? How do you work with your spouse and and make it work successfully? I'm going to go back to Howard again with a little history. I think this is kind of fun, and it was something that that I was just talking about with a couple other folks in uh, Terry Moiler from Thousand Oaks and and, uh, Melinda Estrogen. Washington, D.C., 
We went to one of Howard's breakout sessions. It was um, in Chicago, and it was about spouses working together. And the Falcos were models for us, and uh, Tony Tigert and her husband, Roger, were models for us. So Brian was able to talk to these men who were managing the careers of their wives who were selling lots of real estate. And I think it was Roger Tigert who said to Brian that his job was to sell Tony. That was his wife's name. So Brian kind of got a good sense of how how it could work from other people who had done it. And um, we got to talk to a number of couples who were doing this. So he came back and decided that was his job was to sell Nancy. So so he he had sort of a different thought process than mine. Mine is to bring in units, closed units. And really, to do that, I need to focus on listings. That's my focus. Back then, I did buyers and sellers all the time, both. Um, Now my real focus is on listings. Brian's focus is on selling not just me. It's the team now. But back then, that was kind of what we were looking at because we don't really have a big team at that point. So... If that, I hope, answers your question about how we how do we work. It works because we don't do the same thing. I don't tell him what to do, and he doesn't tell me what to do. I'm good at what I do, and he's good at what he does. I respect what he does, and I, he wouldn't want my job, and I wouldn't want his. You have different personality types, and you're able to split up the business into parts, into specializations, where you're working out in the field, and he was running the office. Does that sound approximately correct? That's exactly correct. Exactly. And that's still the way it is. But he'll back up. You know, he can't. He can't. He has a real estate license. He was a realtor before he went into banking. He does work with a few very special clients, maybe one or two a year that are people he really knows, sometimes on the luxury end or a commercial end. But 99% of the time, 99.9% of the time, he's managing and running day-to-day operations and, and backing me up. So he's my support backup person. I assume over those 20 years, there have been times where you wanted to go left and he wanted to go right. How do you break the tie? We haven't had very many, he wants to go left and I want to go right. I think that, as my grandmother had said to me, if it's not going to matter in 100 years, don't worry about it. So... I don't worry about things that aren't going to matter in 100 years. If it's going to matter in 100 years, I'm going to really go crazy about it. But we, we kind of think enough along the same line that we talk things out and, and um, we don't really have a left and right. We don't have that issue. We're about to leave this topic, but is there any last piece of advice you could give somebody who's thinking about starting to work with their spouse? I think the biggest thing when you're going to work with your spouse, and I know a number of people who do now work with their spouses, or we have lots of couple friends all across the country who are hugely successful. I think it's one of the most brilliant things you can do. And there's some great couple teams out there. And whether it's the husband who is the rainmaker or the wife, I I think that if you complement each other, it's kind of like, you know, fitting hand and glove so that it looks seamless as you're going along and it, you find that you're not trying to manage your spouse. You can't manage them. You have to trust them. And you have to be able to communicate a lot. 
And in the beginning, I think it was harder, if you ask Brian, it was probably harder for Brian in the beginning than it was for me because I'd already been working with people supporting me. He had to kind of rethink it and get his head around what what was he doing. And that's where, for instance, going to meet with other people who do it, hearing Roger describe what his job is crystallized for him what his job was going to be. So I think that as you start it, you each have to know whose job is the rainmaker and what's the other person's job as their job is to sell the rainmaker. So that's the the nut of it. And then how you build out from there would depend on what your skill set is. Just so everybody gets a big picture, where is South Burlington, Vermont? Vermont um, is that state that some people don't know where it is. My description is uh, Burlington, Vermont is on the western side of the state of Vermont, which is above New Hampshire, and I'm about an hour and a half below Montreal. We have a beautiful Lake Champlain that is about 110 miles long, and about I think it's 12 miles wide. That's a very deep, gorgeous lake. We have skiing at Stowe and Sugarbush nearby. They're a little bit outside of my city Burlington. Um, we have, if you go 15 minutes outside of Burlington, you're in rural Vermont in the country. Um, I had a flat tire once, and I had tried that SOS thing. So I'm telling the lady, she wanted to know where I was. I said, I'm on the interstate at mile marker or whatever it was. And she said, where's that? I said, it's in rural Vermont. She wanted to know how you spell rural. I said, it's not a place. She was somewhere, you know, somewhere outside. So Vermont is a very rural state. There are 600,000 people in the whole state. Unfortunately, we have a shrinking population. Maine is the oldest state in the nation with age of the population. We're going to beat them in about a year. So our population shrinking. It's aging. Those are the challenges for Vermont. We really don't have a sprawl problem, but everybody likes to think that we do. We didn't have a big downturn in this past 2007 crash, the uh, L-shaped recovery. We lost between 10 and 20% of market value, kind of on average about 12. But we don't go flying up either. I would listen to people, you know, telling me that, uh, you know, Boston, they had 19% increase from uh, January till April back in the boom in like 06. And we were lucky if we had... 6% for the whole year. So we don't go up a lot, but we don't go down a lot. So we're kind of a steady, steady eddy, I guess, is the best way to describe our real estate economy. So Vermont is in New England, and it is part of the New England states. South Burlington, what's the population there? Um, I have, I don't know. I could look that up for you, but I don't know. I used to live in Charlotte, which is about 20 minutes south, and that had 3,500 people in the town. I think probably South Burlington must have about 23,000 or something like that, but I could be wrong. We could check it out. It's a whole region, so it's not like in in Massachusetts, in New Jersey, in some Connecticut, uh, the agent sells their town. So if, if I lived in Wellesley, Massachusetts, I would pretty much sell Wellesley. In Burlington, there's 150,000 people in the greater metropolitan Burlington area, which is probably from the center of Burlington 20 minutes in three directions. You can't go west because you'd be in the lake. So in that area, you sell all the towns. 
there's no division that you would only sell one town or go one direction because there's not that many people. So right now in Chittenden County, so Burlington is in the Chittenden County, which is the most populated county in the state of Vermont. It also is the financial engine for the state. It's where most of the business is. Um, Most of the rest of the state is very rural, uh, beautiful, and clean air, high mountains, lakes, that sort of thing. Nancy, describe your current real estate market. In Chittenden County right now, for sale, there are 438 single-family homes, and there are 181 condominiums. At the bottom of the this current downturn in about 2010, we had up to about 730 single-family homes at one at any one time, and as high as just uh, in the low 300s for condominiums. So right now, inventory is dropping, plus it's seasonally low. Our best months for selling are um, springtime, March, April, and May, and early June. I think that's probably true across the nation. So right now, there's not as many homes as there will be in, say, August, which is the peak for inventory. Your price trend, is it going up or down? Currently, our market is in a nice, mellow recovery So our average sale price fell from 2007, which was the high, and a single-family home average sale price in 2007 was 329,800, and now it's at 318. So it's been hanging around 319, 303, 315 since 2008 when we started, you know, dipping. The number of units sold in 2007 was just over 1,000, and this year is the first year that we have, again, gone over 1,000. This is for the whole county at 1,028, so up 15% from the year before, and that's the first year that it's up. The days on market is hanging around 102 in Chittenden County, Um, If I look at a year's average, it's about 91. If I look at the last three months, it's at about 102. Uh, Chittenden County has uh, just hit for the first time in that three-month picture to being under six months of supply. So we're just under. We're at about 5.6. We'd been as high as in like 10 months of supply. But if you go to a county just south, their days on market are about 170, and they're at 18 months of supply. So Chittenden County's much more vibrant than the surrounding counties because that's really where the most of the population is. Condominiums are very popular here, so condominiums sort of the same pattern. They actually have been selling great last year, so they're up by about 19% over last year's closed volume. So it's a good recovering market. Prices are down. Single-family home prices fell from a high in 2007 by anywhere from 10 to 20%, depends on if you're a high-end home. The hardest market point right now for us is pretty much 700 to maybe a million and a half. As you go way up, there's, there's movement really high, but that's just that, you know, just under a million is really a tough spot. It hasn't recovered up there yet. Unless you're closer to Burlington, closer you are to Burlington, there's more recovery in the high end. So if you look at prices, we're expected to have a steady same low price through about 2015. It's 
going to take about that long for the number of fires, which are increasing, to continue to increase, and the number of homes available to continue to decrease where we hit that magic turn where we have actually got a shortage. And we're usually a couple of years behind Boston and New York because we're a secondary market. So as the major markets recover, we know that we're kind of come along behind them. And often when they recover, the interest rate goes up, although I just was hearing that potentially they're going to, as long as inflation doesn't really kick in too much, allow those interest rates to stay down while some of the major markets are recovering, which will really help the secondary markets like Vermont, Rochester, New York, Lafayette, Indiana, all those kind of places that are, you know, smaller markets. So I'm hopeful that the interest rates will actually stay down through 2014 because that should really help us um, be able to get rid of this extra inventory so we can have some increase in prices. If you were to look out at your market right now and the sales that have been happening over the last year, what percentage of the sales would you say are REO and short sale versus traditional retail? Our market, we don't have that many. We have short sales and we have foreclosures. And they're more than anybody in Vermont thinks there really are. So I would say out of that thousand houses, you know, maybe there were about a hundred. It's I don't track them because there's not that many. Nancy, do you have a niche or a specialization? I'm a residential real estate agent, and if I have a niche, it is really just to work with a lot of my past clients, but also a lot of new clients. And the I don't have any price point niche or any town niche. I jokingly say, if it's nailed down, I'll sell it. So I pretty much sell Chittenden County. Um, I rely on being in contact with folks. Once they have emailed me or contacted me, I stay in touch. And I think that's been one of my successes. And so my niche is staying in touch with people who I have come in touch with. And that uh, often is a lot of past clients, sphere of influence, that sort of thing. But it's also every year a lot of new clients. So, you know, you have to make new friends, keep the old, because you have to keep pulling, you know, people in. Because it's a small community there. You can't count on that many people that are past clients all moving again. So we, we reach out and try to meet new folks with a lot of different kinds of marketing and staying in touch with all of our past clients that we love dearly. Yeah, so what do you think are your, your top three, four, or five ways that you generate leads in business? I was just with a group of my great friends. We were chatting about marketing and what do you do. And, you know, every time we all get together, we all go back to the basics again. With There's all sorts of new things. People buy leads and all kinds of different things. Internet is huge. I have a great website. My son-in-law had been... Um, building websites for the state of Massachusetts and had my first grandson probably a little over 10 years ago. He's turning 10, about 10 years ago. So I invited them to come back and join me, and I put out, I have three daughters. I said, if anybody wants to come, come now. So, you know, about just, I guess it's nine years ago, they came back um, to work with me. So Jason Gerlach is in charge of my websites, my digital imaging, my email leads. So he's 100% full-time. That's what he does. I think it's hugely important 
that your website is easy to use, that it is up to speed, that it's current, and that you go back and make sure you're touching as fast as possible those leads that come into you. So I think that's one of the most important first things is that you really have to have your web presence and you have to be able to answer the email leads quickly. You can't have email leads that just kind of hang there for four days or two days. So beside that, which is now a basics, to me you have to keep being in the 30-year-old brainwave uh, of how you use your website. So you have to stay current. You have to stay on top of it. You know, the mobile apps and all that sort of thing you have to stay on top of. But I also do still, and I believe strongly in a newsletter that you can either get through the email serve or you can get it in the mailbox. And it's a, um, a newsletter. I've been doing this newsletter for... I would say probably in the mid-90s. It's designed that it is colorful enough for the eyes and it has the names of people who've sent me people on it. Um, I have coupons that I get local companies to give away, you know, percent off of moving or a percent off of a dumpster or flowers or whatever. Each month there's a different coupon. There's a giveaway so I get another business to give something away. This this new one for January is called the State of the Market, and I put all the statistics and what the market's done. People keep that one, and I have a jewelry giveaway on that. So there's giveaway stuff for people who like the giveaway world, the eyes in the world. There's information about the market for people who are Cs or Ds who really want to just know what's going on. So it's usually meaty with statistics, and um, it's colorful, and for the... People who like to read about other people, there's some, you know, names of people who do things. So it's designed to hit all the personality styles, and it is a call to action. So uh, generally when that goes out, I get phone calls. So that's one of the other things that I do a lot. And we also do the old-fashioned, what I called 5, 5, and 10. You'd take a listing and you'd send postcards around the listing, and then you'd send postcards again when you sold it. So... I have people who call me to list their house who've been on my, I go back in my database, which of course, if you don't have a database, that's the first thing you have to do. And I can go back and find people who've been getting my postcards for 20 years. And when we ask, why did you call? It's because you always sending me your nice coupons or I get your newsletter. So for years, they've been getting my newsletter and I'm staying in touch. And then when the time finally comes, I get a phone call. So those are two ways that are simple that you can, once somebody touches you, keep them in your your world. And they become part of your client base. They may not be past clients, but they think they are because they've been chatting with me quietly for years. On the 5, 5, and 10, what do those numbers represent? It, that's really old. That's probably a 1970s or something. It, they used to say, you know, go five houses to the left and five houses to the right and or ten around you or something like that. We don't do five, five. We do probably 25 each direction. So the goal is to make sure in the old days, back in the, you know, when I first started, and I think they probably still teach this, if you see one for sale sign in a neighborhood, you're often going to see another pop up. So if you list a house in the neighborhood 
and you let the rest of the neighbors know about that house, if they're wondering if they don't already have somebody who they're in touch with or they're going to use, if they don't know someone, you are then building off of your success. So you have success because you have a sign in the ground that says the house is for sale or you've sold it. And somebody says, well, that person just sold a house in the neighborhood. Why don't we call them? So that's the concept behind prospecting around your success, which is your listing or your sale. Currently, when you're sending out these just-listed postcards, how many do you send out each time? Well, here we go with Vermont, and sometimes we're in the rural area. So if you're in the rural area, it's harder to get as many out because you get too far away from the house. There's not really a neighborhood. So because we have properties that have, you know, 30 acres, 10 acres, 5 acres, you're not going to get 20 people. If it's an urban or suburban neighborhood, I'd like to send out about 50, but probably on average it's more like about 20 to 25. Well, Nancy, you get a a bulk of your business. The majority of your business comes from past client, your sphere of influence and referrals. Let's talk about that a little bit. I assume, and you mentioned earlier, you have a database. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Now, that would be one of those questions that my husband, Brian, could answer for us. I know that we were looking at switching our database. And so, you know, you're always trying to check out what else is out there. And when we told them how big it was, they, they choked. I think it's something like 19,000 people or something in there. It's huge. It's mammoth. and It's a great program. It's not state-of-the-art. Because it's so big, it's kind of an antique that, I, that Jason hates it, but I don't want to let go of it. So that maybe that's interesting that Jason thinks that we should go to a different platform and I... I'm sort of hooked on this database because I've got so much information in it that I don't want to lose it. What platform are you currently using? I'm using, it was called Online Agent back years ago. Online Agent. And I know lots of agents who have huge databases got started with Online Agent. And so you have everything in there. We have plans. So every time there's a listing or a sale, a past client event, Everything's programmed in here, so it pops up and tells you what you have to do. So when I take a listing, all the things that are supposed to happen pop up, and they're done because it comes right to someone's attention. So a plan is built, loaded in uh, for when we have a sale, when you go under deposit. We have all these programs that are set up so everyone has a consistent level of service, and we can make sure that we're delivering everyone the right service. My motto to the team that we try to live by is, if there's a question, I wonder if I should do that. The answer is, if it was your mother, would you do it? If the answer is yes, then you should do it. So should I send, I have a courier who takes the photos and puts up the signs and, you know, measures and does all that sort of thing, you know. We've had the courier go pick up gas for an elderly client who was at home and was uncomfortable and then couldn't get out. So... If it was your mother, would you do it? The answer is yes. That goes to if it so does someone need to be in a particular ad or should we go check all their houses when the temperature dropped to minus 13 last week, we ran around and checked all the vacant houses to make sure the heat was on and found a few where it wasn't. So if it was your mother, would you do it? The answer is yes. So go do it. So that's kind of another 
hospital philosophy that we live with. So our past clients aren't just our past clients. They're like family. How many homes have you sold in your career? Since Brian's been here, he's tracked that um, since 1995, it was 3,386. So I started selling real estate in 1981 and was winning top awards for Cobalt Banker for years and selling 100 houses for quite a few years. So I don't, I, I'd, I'd have to go try to really figure out all of those past years because, remember, I didn't have anybody really t- keeping track of that sort of thing. But it may be another 1,500 or so. But So if we just talk about 1995 forward, we have good, accurate records. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. So in total, you're probably somewhere around 5,000 total past clients. You have this larger database, which probably includes your sphere of influence. My question is, who do you put in your database? Who goes into this database? Anybody who's in that quote-unquote 5, 5, and 10. If you are a client lead or a buyer call-in or a listing prospect, in the database, I can label them listing prospect for which year it is, but if you're a listing prospect, you're in it. Uh, if you're a buyer call, you're in it. Pretty much everybody's in it. And we like to put people on this mailing list, either by email or by hard copy mail, so that you're regularly staying in touch. And as um, if you're a past client, then we have another bunch of programs where we send out calendars. We have a lot of different past client events that we tried in the past, and we've come to really enjoy having movie day. It's in early March, and we send a movie invitation to all the past clients that we have, and we have about 400 people show up at the movies at 9.30 in the morning, and we're all there. Everybody brings in a food for the food shelf. And um, we smile and meet people. I've seen people's kids go from, you know, toddlers up through college, and some of them are now have their own kids. And so I get to see them all, and um, we all stand out front and, and welcome everybody in inside the movie theater, welcome them and chatting. And so it's a great event to get to see people over the years. So once you're a past client, you get invited to the movies. I once, uh, when Judy was here, we did a, uh, a day outdoors where there was mountain biking, hay rides, corn roasting, and it, and it poured rain, and it was so much work we couldn't believe it. It was a disaster. It was so much hard work. So we skipped that, and we went to the movies, and we've stayed with it ever since because it's indoors, it's dry, and they love it, and the theater puts on like four different, the current movies, the movies of the day. So if it happens to, and it's spring, so it's often good movies. I think we had... Uh, Star Wars and, you know, popular stuff that people like to go see. So we always make sure we have little kid movies and um, one, we don't do anything that's, uh, you know, risky. They're family movies. <laughs> Try to get a comedy in there, but basically it's family movie day. And that's in the morning and it's over by noon and I get to see everybody and we usually get a couple hundred pounds worth of food to take to the food shelf and 
And then if you have to go show houses, you've got the rest of Saturday to go do it. And lots of my team members show up to also see their past clients. So you set that up on a Saturday. Are you, are you still doing that now? Do you still do that every year? Oh, yeah. People, talk, people love it. They're asking me, we do a movie day again? I, yes, we do a movie day. So it's, um, it's a great event. People absolutely love it. We, we do a couple other different things. The year that you buy a house, I send out these Vermont-made porcelain little half-moon things that say the year and my name on it. So each year when you get your holiday going, out comes your you know, decorations, and there's my little ornament. And some people have a collection, which is great. We send out seeds, forget-me-not seeds, in the spring. I used to send dirt with it and a little letter that said, here's a piece of dirt from Vermont. You haven't seen dirt in a long time, but spring is coming. But that was a lot of work. We had little dental bags, and we used to stuff peat moss in it, and um, that was way too much work, so we, we quit that. We just send the seeds out. But people love the seeds. People say, oh, my forget-me-nots keep coming up. Are you sending out the seeds? And so it's one of those things. I try to do some things that are warm and fuzzy and others that are statistically based, number-crunchy sort of things. But the, we also do a fall sending people around to remember about fire safety and change your batteries. And um, we send pies out at Christmas to everybody who's listed Thanksgiving time. We send pies to people at Thanksgiving, who are listed, uh, they can get a pie for their holiday either all the way up through November to the end of the year, they're good. So it's a lot of touching the coupon thing. People love the coupons. It's kind of goofy, but uh, lots of people love those coupons. They, you know, apple picking in the fall and different things. So we've had a, a lot of different ways that we can touch our past client base. How often does the newsletter go out? Generally 10 times a year. The big one that will go out early February with all the statistics, it's called State of the Market. So it talks about everything that happened in the market statistically. Uh, that one is getting ready to go to the press right now. I have to kind of wait till I get to the middle of the month of January to make sure everybody has reported. Uh, realtors are a little slow on reporting, as you know, so we have to make sure by the middle of the month almost everyone's reported. Then we'll do another one the end of February, March, April, May, June. I sometimes will do July and sometimes I'll skip July, picking back up with August, September, October, and then we have a holiday one that's got, you know, one of my grandmother's recipes on it that's a holiday-type one that is uh, got a Christmas kind of holiday coupon that goes out around Thanksgiving. So there are 10 of them. So the newsletter is going out about 10 times a year. How many events are you trying to put on each year? Really, we only have the event is the movie day. We don't have any other events. That, that's a lot of work doing events. You try to make some other contacts here, like you send out the seeds in the spring? Seeds. We have a fall newsletter. Yep. So the seeds are going with the newsletter? No, the seeds are separate. We have calendars that go out in late October. There's a schedule of events of all the things, and each year I rework the schedule of events. I would say that probably we have the October postcard. We have the pies that go out for people who are listed in November. And well, I give out scholarships to students for college, and that happens in June. So that's been going on for about 10 years. 
so we have that goes out to all my client base. So they, if they know any students, and we also contact all the schools. So we have um, that scholarship giveaway, and we send them. Probably, they'll get postcards, different postcards through the year for Earth Day or Maple Sugar and stuff. But, but they're the real main thing is the newsletters. The newsletters are steady that they go out to everybody, and then the past clients will get about four or five additional things on top of the newsletter. Yeah, that was kind of where I was going, is how many contacts per year are you trying to make? For a past client, someone who's on that past client list, they would end up with probably a minimum of 15. We do the 4th of July parade, for instance, so we'll often send out stuff about the parade, so they're just little flyer-type things that periodically we'll do. But the, the main theme is the calendar, the seeds, the movie day, and the newsletters. So those are the, those are the biggies and the scholarship. So that's the four. Tell us about the scholarship. What are you doing there? How, how does that work? If somebody wants to put something like that together, describe it to us. I know there's a lot of different ways that it's done. Mine's kind of simple because we don't really have a big one town, like I don't have a town football kind of thing. I know that Craig Lurch in, um, does one where his town has a big football thing and he has people go out at, at during the game. So I have so many different towns that I advertise for students to apply, and I also send it out to all of the high schools and I'll put it in, advertise it on, in, even in real estate magazines and things, so I can get as many students as possible to send in. And my goal is to help a student who's not going to win all the other scholarships, someone who maybe didn't think they could really go to college and um, who also has some need. So I don't want to call it the B student, but, but that student who's just not the excelling sports student or the you know, they're not going to win a whole bunch of awards because they're, they're more, they may be late bloomers. So that's the student I want to help get into college so that they have that next opportunity to go forward. So we give out um, $2,000 scholarships every year to, you know, two different kids, and the team reads them. I have a great team. I haven't really told you all about my team, but I would like to. So my team reads them and decides who they like best, and they sort of we end up picking two. And one year we had such a tie, we had a third person, so we added another five hundred dollars for that person. But it doesn't have to be a past client or related to us. It's just a someone who has a need and has a desire to succeed. So those are that's the criteria. And so the student fills out an application and sends it in, and then you and your team review them. No, they write a letter to us. They write a letter. I don't need an application. I don't want their resume. I want them to write a letter and say, you know, this is why I need the money, and this is what I want to do. We've had some really great kids we've helped, and then we take their picture and we put it in the newsletter, take the picture of the child. You know, we get permission from them to put their picture in and announce our our winners for the year, and I get to see them periodically because it's been a lot of years. So it's nice to get, I think, if a child gets into school and into college, hopefully they'll, they'll stay with it and, and um, graduate from college and have a better life. 
I'm also very involved with uh, Boys and Girls Club. I'm on the board for the local Burlington Boys and Girls Club. And, you know, poverty in Burlington is a, is a problem. And um, part of the big push with that group is that we're trying to break that cycle of poverty with education. So that's one of the other things that I'm really involved in is United Way and the Boys and Girls Club and uh, some of those sorts of things. As I've been getting older in my career, I have more time to be able to get involved in those sorts of things instead of just being the only person selling like mad, like I used to do in the past. Just a few more moments on past clients and follow-up. You've mentioned now mail and email and events. Are you also trying to make phone calls? And if so, how often are you trying to do that? I prospect. So I think that prospecting is an art that you need to practice it and you have to have scripts and you have to know what you're going to say and you have to have a message. And I keep going back to folks that I know across the country. Fred, a good friend of mine out in Hawaii, he was an Olympic swimmer and he said, you can't win the Olympics if you don't practice. So you have to practice prospecting and you have to do it. So I have lists of people that I call regularly to sort of keep in touch with. And I would I don't have an hour of power, but I do know that in my world of uh, teaching how to sell real estate and practicing it myself, you have to spend a couple of hours almost every day, but at least an hour to find time to make sure you're touching people and prospecting. So some of my prospecting isn't on the phone, though. It is getting myself out to events that I might not go to. And that was in a plan that I had probably about almost 10 years ago now because I'm my personality is, you know, I'd rather work. I don't want to go socialize. And so I had to put it on my plan to go to join and go to events and meet people and talk um, and that's part of prospecting that was something that I didn't do as much. Phone calling was easy for me, the getting out and making sure I do things like get onto a board, go to uh, meetings that are held in your community, uh, get to know the people, talk to them. So that's another prospecting that I think is also important that if you like making the phone calls and you got that under your belt, remember that face-to-face, nose-to-toes, is probably going to be more productive than just making phone calls. When you're out at these social events, are you directly asking for referrals? No, I don't ask for referrals the way that it's, I don't say for, gee, do you know somebody who's selling? But if I'm at an event, everybody asks me, or if I'm at the grocery store, because I shop at the same place and everybody knows who I am, they're going to ask me, how's the market? So I'm going to answer, how's the market? I say, and I might joke with somebody and say, so when it's time for you to move or somebody else, don't forget to call me. Or So I, I'll make light conversation about when they're thinking about it, but I don't wear a sign that they're going to run away from me because I'm pounding on people for referrals. If you're talking to people and you're listening, you can hear when there's a change in their family. The kids are moving away. The grandkids are moving in. They've got grandkids. You know, those are all times when is it most likely someone's going to be 
thinking that they need to downsize, upsize, add investment properties. So you just, as you're at an event, you need to listen to the person who's talking to you about what's going on in their life so that you can then maybe follow up later, but you may not pounce on them at the event. When you make your phone call prospecting calls, how does that go? Do you have a script that you use? Most of my prospecting calls are warm calls. So I don't, I'll often call people with an, again, my database, will bring me up an anniversary someone bought a year ago or three years ago. So there, I often will use an anniversary call and I'll call and say, did you realize that you bought your house three years ago? And I just want to check in if I get a voicemail. I want to check in and see how everyone's doing. It was great working with you. And if you have any real estate questions or if I can help you with anything, please don't hesitate to call me. And uh, if you or your friends or relatives are ready to move, I'm here for you. And I hang up. If they answer, then we can talk about, you know, how's it going and what changes have they made to the house and all you know, just getting to F-O-R-D, Dave Keller's uh, F-O-R-D, which is a great way to chat with people about what is important to them. Is it their family? Is it their job? Is it their dreams? You know, what connection do you have with that person? And can you get them to talk to you about those things, F-O-R-D? And if you can, then generally you can find if there's something that you can do to help. And if not, it doesn't matter if they move. They're going to tell 10 friends. That's my other joke is, well, if you're not moving, just tell 10 friends about me and have somebody give me a buzz. I often will use humor to just remind people that's what I do. But everybody knows who I am, so it's pretty much a given that I'm there. You know, call me. I'm here. And often people will ask questions about relatives in other states. So I send referrals out. And I have a great group of realtors across the nation that we all talk to each other all the time, and so we send referrals back and forth all the time. So if I go to list your house and you're moving to wherever, I just did one there going to Florida, so I called up a great friend of mine who's in Florida. She knew some people in that town, and um, so I connected with the person. And what do you know, the realtor there has family here in Burlington, who I happen to sell a house for. So it's just a small world. But if you listen, if you listen, you can send referrals, and the more referrals you send, the more referrals you get back. And that's another bit of business that agents, I think, forget to do. They forget to just, you know, connect the dots. If somebody's moving out of town, if they don't already have a realtor, you know, connect them to someone who's good. It'll make your job easier on the end you're on, and it'll make the person's life easier because they'll be with someone who's good on the other end. When you're putting together those national referrals, do you have a standard agreement that you use or do you use somebody else's? When I have a referral, generally what I'll do is I'll contact the agent, talk to them, and then I send them an email with my contact information and I just send a form out that is very simple and it's got a box that we check that it's a listing or a buying referral and we ship it to them and they sign it. So we have a record so that we can track it's something that was sent out. And I know that some agents have a very coordinated system about, you know, following up with people. I live in the trust world, so I'm assuming that if they sell the house, they'll, they'll send me whatever we've agreed on. And each time it's always, 
you know, up for discussion on how, how it all goes. Nancy, let's do this. Let's talk about your team. Could you tell us all the people on your team? And, and what we're looking for is the titles and also if you could tell us the tasks associated with each of those positions. I have a fabulous team. We have the administrative group, and it's a, I have a heavy number on the administrative side because I want to make sure that our systems are being followed and that everyone's getting um, really good service. And so we have Carol Bluen, who is my right arm, and so she runs the closing world. So she takes care of you from the deposit through closing and will coordinate with the seller, for instance, when's the appraiser coming and you know, we touch base with the bank periodically and make sure things are on track time-wise. She also is my, she's been with me for over 10 years, so she also is sort of in, in a bit of a, a management-type position where my courier who's going to go out and take pictures or put up signs or measure something, or yesterday we had a, a short sale that had an issue, so she coordinated him going over and checking it. So she does... Beside doing closings, she also gets involved a little bit in listings and a, a lot with buyers, and so she's kind of the general office coordinator in, for transactions. Emma is my marketing coordinator, so she helps with feedback. And if you're selling your house, especially in a slow market, you, the minute the person leaves your door, you want feedback. So Emma helps me tag the other realtors and get the feedback and get it back to the seller she coordinates the ads, and I do do print advertising in three magazines. I know it's antiquated, but it keeps me out there in front of the buyers and sellers so that, you know, my name is right there in front of them. If they're wondering where did I go, I didn't disappear. I'm right there. So she does that. She also uploads all the pictures, uploads the MLS, uploads the pictures in the website. So she's the marketing coordinator. Brian, my husband, who I've talked about, uh, runs the back room and the numbers and hiring and all of that sort of thing. Also, one of my buyer specialists have a, has a question. Brian's here for that. Jason runs the Internet website world. And also, everybody's problem when your machine doesn't do what it's supposed to do, Jason can fix it for us. So that's my administrative group along with Jim. And Jim is my courier. And that is a blessing. So he has his own car. We own the car. And he um, can go to the town hall and get me information because in Vermont it's not online. You have to go to the town hall and get the map. So he can do that sort of thing, take pictures. If somebody wants different pictures or the season changes, we have to go around and get all snow pictures. Then when it's spring, to go around and get spring pictures and summer pictures. So he's busy full-time doing that. And he also takes care of the trucks. He uh, will go make sure that the trucks, I have two moving vans, so he makes sure that those are, you know, in order and ready for people. Emma runs the truck schedule, so if you want to borrow the truck, you have to check in with Emma. So we have a lot of little pieces that go on that they take care of. And then in my sales world, when I sent the message out that if you wanted to join me to my three daughters, my oldest daughter joined me, Allison, so Allison Barges, and she helps also take listings and sells. So she does buyers as well as listings. My youngest daughter, Amanda Gerlach, 
husband, Jason, does also. Um, she's just coming back from having been on maternity leave, so she also takes listings and works with buyers. Then I have Cindy Warfield, who's been with me for 17 years, and she does work with buyers. Patty Brinkerhoff, who's been with me for 10 years, she works with buyers. David uh, Miner, who's been with me for about four years, who does buyers. Um, Bill had just came back to me. Bill Lawler had been with me in the around the year 2000, and then he had a lot of little young children, so left and got to spend some quality time with the babies, and now he's back again, and he works with buyers. And a new gal, Lori Millette, who just came out of the insurance industry, who's with me um, working with buyers. So I have a good, strong team, and everyone works together. So if someone has a schedule that they were going to answer the phone and they can't, we just do a message through the phone and someone else will pop up. Or if someone has an accident, which we just had, and got hurt, everyone else fills in and helps the person out. So if you want to take vacation, you can. Um, Patty's off on a, over a month vacation, so other people are helping her out. So the goal of having a big enough team wasn't just to maximize units. It's so that everyone has quality of life and balance. And, and I'm not looking at everybody saying, you know, you have to be working 80 hours a week or 60 hours a week. You have to be able to have balance in your life so that you have a home life and life with your children. So families first in our world. And if, if you have, you know, a student interview with the teacher, I want you to be with your child's interview with the teacher or be at the game not feeling like that, wow, I, some client of mine needs to go see a house at 6 o'clock and I've got a little league game, someone else will go for you so that you don't have to miss it. So that's part of it's kind of a family event, and I think that's why I have people who stay for a long time on the team. Nancy, what do you do for the team? I list. I'm the, a rainmaker. I train, and I've got a lot of history as managing, and probably my background is teaching. So I do a lot of that, and as the rainmaker, my job is to bring in lots of listings. So last year, we closed 102 listings and 80 buyer sides. So my job is to bring in listings and get them sold. Yeah, you mentioned you have two agents that are doing listings and sales. The 102 listings, how many of those did you list? I'm thinking maybe about 90, but I'd have to double check. Amanda was out last year on maternity leave, so it was just Allison. And so I would say she probably did 10 to 15. So I could find out for you accurately, but more, more or less probably around 85 to 90. So you're taking a lot of listings still. Yes. I'm still working full-time. Friday night is date night, though. I don't work on Friday night. How long have you been doing that? For years, years and years. Probably, I don't know, 15 years. Another one of those things we grabbed from Howard was, you know, make a date with your spouse. Even though you're, even if you're working by yourself and you just, you know, it's very hard that somebody wants to go see a house and you've already invested, you know, hours with them. And so you end up torn that you are going to, do you let your family down or do you let this client down? We've often said that if you make the choice and you let your family down, probably that person's not going to buy anything anyway. So 
honor your family first, and the people will respect your boundaries. You've got this team running around. People who either have a team or are thinking about building a team are always curious about compensation. Can you tell us anything about how you compensate these people? The administrative staff are on salaries, and they have bonuses, and they have um, some profit sharing. The uh, buyers and listings uh, all work off of commission. Would you be willing to tell us, for instance, buyer agents, what percentage commission do you pay out or what the scale is or the structure? You know, everybody's world is different. And if you are looking at how you get paid, you know, what if you work with a franchise and you get something off the top? It's going to be different than if you don't work with a franchise. You know, so some of those split things, it's also going to make a difference what other benefits or what else do they have to do. So it's a... You have to look in your own market, and I know in the beginning when I was first looking to hire someone to help, the question that I got back as an answer was, in your own community, what does, for instance, a paralegal get paid? What does someone who works in a lawyer's office or an assistant in an accountant's office, what does they get paid? And that would give you an idea of what a good salary would be for someone who's assisting you, and back with the percentages, you have to manage your business and what do you ask them to do. I don't make them do some of the things that I know other people do. I don't have uh, quotas and I don't have steps. I expect that as um, I think it was Einstein said that you can't light a fire in someone who doesn't have a fire. So I, I don't make people march to my drummer, they have to have their own drummer drumming in their own heart. So the fire has to be in their belly. I just, I pay them a nice split so that they can build on that. But I don't give them rules and regulations and you have to turn in names and I got to keep track of them. And so I jokingly call myself a laissez-faire manager because I expect it's up to you. If you're going to do well, you need to, I'll teach you how to do it, but it's up to you to do it. I'm not going to, you know, cause you to have to turn in all sorts of prospecting forms and things. How do you keep control of your time? Controlling my time is a function of my team's strength. So I built the team up so that I could step back from buyers, and that was a huge drama for me to stop really doing buyers. So I still have a few, but I don't do buyers as a rule. I still have some, but very few. It's really somebody I know really well. And because I don't have time to focus on the listings if I'm also out with buyers. So that was about maybe 10 years ago that I said, I have to have a little more control of my life and more control of my time. And so I'm going to focus on listings because that's where I need to be focusing, and I need to let go of the desire to manage buyers because I could always pop some buyers through if I needed if I needed to crank up the numbers, I just pop some buyers through. So that was a big decision to let go of that, and that frees up more of my time now and since I'm in this, you know, 30 years doing this, I don't work 
80 hours a week. I work 80 hours a day, every day. But my joke is if I can keep my days that I do work to 12 hours. So I would rather work, you know, a long day on the day I'm working and if I'm taking a day off. If I take Sunday off, I don't, I'll talk to you and do negotiate contracts, but I probably won't be meeting with you. So I'm still 100% involved, but I'm not necessarily in face-to-face with someone every day of the week anymore. How many days do you work in a typical week? Seven, but I may not meet with you. So if I'm negotiating contracts, if I have your new listing and you have questions, um, I'm going to probably be talking to you or emailing you, but I'm not going to drive over to your house and sit down with you and see if you want to think about selling your house or not. Do you take off certain days during the week? I aim for trying to have my Monday through Friday absolutely packed so that I have lighter Saturdays and Sundays, which is kind of a reverse from when you're showing houses. You end up having heavy Saturdays and Sundays and maybe taking off a lighter Tuesday and Wednesday. But listings, often um, I'm going to be meeting with those people during the week because it's more of a, I don't need to go on weekends as often. But I do work at night where I jokingly call that my second job. So I'll have, you know, appointments in the evening when people get home from work. And I know other people who prefer to go, like, on Saturday instead of in the evening. So you just have to balance out, you know, I don't have children at home anymore, but I have grandchildren. So I can see them more on a weekend than I can see them in the evening. I think you have to just look at what your life is like. If you have, you know, kids coming home for dinner back when I had kids home, I would always go home for dinner. I'd get home after school, stay there, and then have my, jokingly, my assistant mother show up, and I'd go off and have a a listing appointment at 7 o'clock and at 8.30. Crazily, people would meet me then. But I would be home for after school and dinner, and then when they were going to bed, I'd go out and have two appointments. So you have to fit your lifestyle. How many hours do you work in a typical week? I haven't really looked at that. I would say probably, well, I know it's over 60, so that's, you know, probably over 60. Depends on the week. If it's spring, I've also, another little saying of mine, if the strawberries are ripe, you should pick them. Don't not pick them when they're ripe and expect you're going to show back up again in the fall and there's no strawberries there. So if it's spring, I'm going to work a lot more than I'm going to work. For instance, in the summer in Vermont, it's a little bit slower because everybody's playing. So you can play more in July and early August than you can in June and May and March and April. So plan your vacations, plan your schedule around the seasonality of your market. So if your market's hot, be there. Don't take off for your vacation smack in the middle of the height of the season because it will, you know, it makes more sense to be available when everybody wants to do something. So it it balances out. (laughs) Nancy, what drives you? I think that I read something once about baby boomers and we were all born to drive ourselves nuts driving ourselves. My personality style is kind of uh, direct and a lot of in the beginning it was to, you know, make it available to live on and then get through college. And so now it's kind of a a comfortable lifestyle that I'm used to doing it. I enjoy the people and I enjoy my team 
and I enjoy working with the clients. I have a real soft spot for grandmas and grandpas. So, you know, it's just, it's really nice helping people get whatever their goal is or their needs satisfied. So it, I like working with the people, and that is probably, I don't know if it's a drive, but it's satisfying. Why have you been so successful? Because I don't let go. <laughs> so I'm a tenacious. If, and that's been, I guess, probably one of the things that is a key. Also, I've spent time learning. I've gotten to meet some great realtors across the nation, and I've copied their ideas. I didn't invent the idea of a truck, but having the truck, I've had the truck for years now, again, way back in the 90s. So being able to stay a little bit on the cutting edge, listening to what's going on out there, practicing scripts, being able to get take rejection and learn from it, and associate yourself with people who are doing well and listen to those people. I know that you interviewed Sam Miller. He's always been one of my great stars. I just saw him last week, and Jana. All these people who do... Russell Shaw, Rob Levy, all the people that you're interviewing, Pat Hyben, have all been influential in my life, and I've listened to what they've done and taken pieces of it and made it work in my world. So I think you have to have an approach to your practice as a business and also a desire to keep on perfecting it so you don't just you know, look from one deal to the next deal. You've got to work on your business as well as in your business. Nancy, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Learn scripts. Practice scripts. Practice calling people. Make your time valuable. Schedule time for prospecting. But definitely learn scripts because then if you're out with a customer, and you have something to say. You also have a, an avenue that will help you succeed in closing the sale, putting them in a house. You can't look at real estate as a brand-new agent. So many of them are afraid to ask for the sale, or they'll keep on selling after they have a sale. They don't realize that the person's ready, and they just keep on selling because they, they're not learning sales. So you have to learn how to sell, and you have to practice at it. And scripts and dialogues and listening to others uh, and prospecting are probably some of the biggest keys. And once you get so you're doing a good number of transactions, get yourself an assistant so that you can stay meeting the people and selling instead of spending your day you know, trying to organize your stuff. You can stay in front of people. If you get good at selling, that's, you know, the dirty word that people don't like to talk about that you're selling, but your job is to sell houses. So you have to get good at it. So I have a funny picture that my youngest daughter did this great picture of me back in kindergarten with a big smile on my face and earrings and, you know, all this. And I have it framed, and she wrote that, labeled as a real estate salesperson by Amanda, and it says real estate people try to sell houses for people. They work in an office. They use lots of paper and pencils and notebooks with pictures of houses that are for sale. 
They have to put ads in the newspaper and put signs in the houses that they want to sell. To do this job, you have to be good at selling things and nice to lots of people. She was five. That does sum it up. (laughs) She's with me now selling houses. And they both went to college and had careers for quite a while before they came back and joined me. So um, both Amanda and Allison uh, were in the kind of the high-tech boom. And um, so for probably good 10 to 15 years, they did their own thing and then rejoined me. So I grew them, but they didn't come straight out of high school into college back to real estate. So they worked in other fields first. So I would say that that's not where I thought they were going to end up, but I'm glad they're here. And we have, as I jokingly call it, a family business and everybody's family in the whole team. Nancy, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Yes. This is where you're going to learn all these things. I think that as a new agent, you need to listen to scripts. You need to listen to tapes. You need to, if you can, go to NAR or some conference or listen and meet people. But listening to these tapes over and over again, each time you listen to a tape, you'll hear something different that you didn't hear the first time. And you are at a different place in your career, you'll be able to try something that you didn't try the first time you heard it. So you may listen to one of the tapes the first time. When you go back and hear it again, you realize there were things in there that you missed because you weren't ready to hear it yet or it wasn't right time for you or who knows, the phone rang while you were while that was happening. So listening to tapes on your exercise bike or your jog or your run or when you're in the car, a tape, a CD, whatever it is that you're plugging in, listening for scripts, dialogues, knowing people, how they set up their businesses, things you can copy. Um, Russell Shaw is a fountain of knowledge. I know that Pat Hyben directly learned what to do from Russell. And Russell and I have had great conversations. Every time I talk to Russell, I learn something new and different. So talking to different people and listening to the tapes and re-listening to them, even though you've already heard it, new things will come to you each time. What are you doing along the lines of social media? We are in an interesting time, I think, with social media that it's going to change a lot. Right now, we have a team page, and we have had some really good success with our team page with getting friends and having some people who do really like to connect through Facebook, for instance. Allison is very active in Facebook, and she has done a lot of business and gotten to know people that um, are coming to her through Facebook and our friends of friends through Facebook. So she has a great local inter-referral network through her Facebook connection, and it is becoming for some people the way they want to communicate. And so I think it is a part of your business that you have to focus on. So when we have a new listing, we tweet it, we pop it into Facebook, and we blast it out to our client base who've signed up for our newest listings. And then we, of course, blast it out to all the realtors. And then we blast it out to the public. So we kind of do it in that order. And Facebook and tweeting, lots of people really like to stay connected. My middle daughter's an editor, and she works in the human rights field in New York City. So my Internet, my website is loaded with keywords and well-edited because she's an editor. 
but um, I had her helping me with the Facebook, and that's part of what she does. And we did a couple of interesting things, like we took uh, kitchens from a couple of our higher-end houses and had a contest, who likes this kitchen, which kitchen is the best. We popped up some pictures of who likes a local French fries versus a McDonald's French fries. And so people came in and talked about it, and it kind of drove them into the site. And then we blog and we send out information about things. So there's a whole collection of people who do like that. There's a whole collection of people who like the web. And then there's people who just like to talk to you on the phone or look in magazines. So there's so many different kinds of ways to communicate that in you, you really do need to have the social media component in your business. Well, Nancy, you've led a storied career from 18% interest rates and working on your own to building a team and letting go to working with your spouse to mentoring your children to shrinking your production when it got too big. You've learned a variety of lessons. Your need to sell one more house to pay the bills, to buy some new clothes, to send you and the family on a club med vacation, to pay for college, to funding your retirement. You accomplished it all with your drive, determination, persistence, and your tenacity. Once you set your mind, you don't let go. As you say, when the strawberries are ripe, you pick them. Thanks again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who overcame adversity and near ruin and sold 91 homes last year. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.